Good to see you today. I'm disappointed I don't get the song and dance by the kids. I was pretty excited about this little light of mine, right? Oh, man, that would have been a good group participation. It is good to be in the house of the Lord on a Sunday morning. Good to see extended family in Christ. I'm so happy for houses where people can come together, celebrate Jesus, see one another, encourage one another. I want to lift up pastors Jamie and Lisa. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for who you are, what you represent. Thank you for your friendship. And, uh, and thank you for sharing this pulpit time today. I, I count it a high, high honor when you're asked to minister in someone's church, and then especially on a Sunday morning, you know that's pastor time. I want to honor that uh, today and uh, lift up Jesus. Let's make him look good. Sit back, relax, enjoy a journey in the Word to, together today. Uh, we'll take a look at some scripture and hopefully... This is always my prayer. Shine a spotlight on how beautiful Jesus is, on what Christ has done to finish the work on our behalf so that we can be liberated, we can be freed, we can have grave clothes of shame and guilt removed, we can walk free in who we are in Christ, and we can pick up the mantle of our responsibility on the earth because we have something to do, and we come in here to get equipped to do it. We get equipped through our identity. We get equipped through understanding what's been done for us. Then we go out in the world and we shine like lights. We salt the earth. We flavor this place. And so I'm excited today to jump in and get to do a little bit of that. I'm also excited to have my wife, Natasha, here with me today. I honor uh, the fact that she got to make the journey. If you ever wonder, well, why doesn't he ever have her come up and talk? Well, 20, almost 26 years of marriage, that's 52 Sundays a year. You do the math. I'm not very good at that. Every one of those times I've asked, hey, you want to get up and say something today? So still got no uh, after all this time, not because she doesn't like people, but because she doesn't like to be up here talking to people. So, um, but there she is, and uh, I honor her today. Uh, she knows if she ever wants the mic, she's got it. And man, you t let me tell you, if that ever happened, this guy would listen. That would be quite a moment. So, well, are you ready for the word today? All right, let's get started this morning. I'll meet you in the 10th chapter of Acts on our way to this most important of chapters. I don't want to overemphasize it, but I'm afraid it's been underemphasized. I think what happens in the 10th chapter of Acts might be, and here I run the risk of overemphasizing it, but it might be the most pivotal moment in the development of the early church. Because here is the man to whom Jesus passed the mantle and said, You're Peter. You're the rock. And on this rock I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Now we know that all of that stuff applies to all of us rocks. We have access and keys to the kingdom. But here's Peter who in the minds of the early church is the one that Jesus has selected. And so it's fitting that when there's a turn as to where the gospel goes and who's qualified to receive the gospel, it has to come out of the mouth of Peter. A man who had such an encounter with Jesus, the famous denial the infamous denial, and then the famous breakfast by the charcoal fire where he is told to go feed the lambs and feed the sheep. Here's Peter, well-equipped. Here's Peter, the, the preacher of Pentecost, the Acts chapter 2 presentation of in these last days and the power of the Holy Spirit that came out of his mouth, the first evangelist of the new church. and sees 3,000 people come to Christ. But the key that was left out in my description there is that he sees 3,000 Jews 
come to the knowledge of who Christ is as the Jewish Messiah for them as a nation. And in Acts chapter 10, you can feel this pulsing desire by the Holy Spirit and the undercurrents of the first 10 chapters of Acts to break out, to get out of the Jerusalems and the temples and the synagogues and to take the message of love and forgiveness and acceptance and grace beyond the borders, so to speak, of the temple, to get it out there to the people that really need it. And the moment with Peter... And this introduction of an Italian regiment, an Italian cohort led by a man named Cornelius is Acts' most pivotal scene where we have two peoples meeting, neither of whom know one another, both of whom have been seeking the Lord, one who has no relationship with Jesus, the other who does, and this amazing climactic moment where the Cornelius' people meet Peter and his crew, and then what happens in that following that twists and turns the book of Acts on its ear. This is such an amazing encounter. It really encompasses all 48 verses of Acts 10 as this one scene. And it's so important that when you get into Acts 11, Peter spends half of Acts 11 retelling Acts 10. Then when you get in Acts 15, Peter gets up and tells it again. And it tells me that the author of Acts really wants you to pay attention. One time's one thing. Two times means, hey, that might have been important. Three means don't miss it. It's also you get three times hearing Paul's journey on the road to Damascus. Maybe pay attention to what happens in progressive revelation. Pay attention to what happens with Peter in the house of Cornelius. Because I think, and this is all intro to set us up for a little reading, but I think Peter is a retelling of an Old Testament story. I think the Old Testament story of Jonah journeying from Joppa and running to Tarshish, running from the call of God to preach to the people of Nineveh, encountering the whale and being vomited up on the beach, and then having to make a decision if he will or won't preach to the people of Nineveh, is replayed with higher theology, or should I say, replayed with new covenant theology in the, in the story of Acts 10 of Peter with Cornelius. And here's one of the reasons why, and as we read, I'll show you some of the other reasons why. One of the reasons why is that Jonah struggles with the people of Nineveh because Nineveh has oppressed Jonah and his people and his family. They've wronged them, and Jonah's natural human desire is, I wish people would get what they deserve. And what do the Ninevites deserve? Whatever bad thing God wants to do to them. If he wants to crush them, if he wants to drain them, if he wants to break them, I'm okay with that. And then when God speaks to Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach repentance to them, Jonah bristles because he knows that God is good and that God is faithful and that God is merciful and that God is long-suffering. And he knows that there's a good chance that the people of Nineveh will be convicted and respond to the loving call of God and they'll ask God's forgiveness. And he's positive that if they do that, God will relent. He won't crush them. He won't destroy them. And Jonah won't get what he really wants, which is a bunch of dead Ninevites. And so, what's he do? He runs from the call because he says it'd be better if I just didn't go preach. Because if I don't go preach, then they'll get what's coming to them. And if I go preach, God is good, he'll forgive them, and we don't want to live in a world where Nineveh doesn't get what they deserve. And so Jonah runs, and you know the story, and we don't have to recount it. It's a powerful little four chapters in the Old Testament. 
But Jonah's issue is that Jonah really doesn't want Nineveh to receive what it is that they have coming because he understands the mercy and the long-suffering of God. And then when you get to the 10th chapter of Acts, I think God elevates the Nineveh-Jonah story and interjects new people, new characters, a new cast of characters. Rather than the Ninevites, let's have the Italian band under the house of Cornelius. Or really, Italian is a phrase that would not have meant much in the old world. The, the, the country of Italy wasn't a country as we know it until about the 19th century. Before then, it was a collection of kingdoms and empires and city-states and vassal groups and whatever. But it was not to identify a nation. It was to identify a, a bloodline. Or in the case of the scriptures, it's to identify the others. Because there's us, and then there's everyone else. And by us, in the New Testament, I meant... Jews, Hebrews, or maybe those who have accepted Christ who are also Jewish, but everybody else is Greek or Gentile or Italian. It's one of the reasons why our etymology is, you know, I don't understand what I just heard. It's all Greek to me. Because whatever we don't understand is Greek. Whatever is outside of us, that's the rest of the world. That's the thing that we don't know very well. And so Acts 10 introduces a new Nineveh. And the new Nineveh are the Cornelius house, the Italian band, the Gentiles, the Greeks, the ones we don't understand. Or maybe, in an extreme case like Nineveh, the ones we don't like, the ones we wish would get what's coming. Pick the people you don't understand and insert them into Cornelius' side of the plot. And then the Jonah character is Peter. A brand new Jonah, a Jonah of a different sort, because this Jonah also hears the word of the Lord to go down and do what he is supposed to do. But in Peter's situation, it's not a rejection of whatever he's supposed to do because he wishes everybody would get what is coming to them. It's a rejection of what he is supposed to do because he doesn't realize everybody is as worthy as he is. And this is an issue none of us, I don't think, that's probably too broad of a statement, but I'll stay with it for purposes of illustration. I don't think any of us have the Jonah mentality. Not too much. I hope not. Boy, I wish they get what's coming to them, although I think that happens sometimes. I think we really do sometimes wish people would get what's coming to them. Um, I, I don't think that's the prevailing response of most of us. I think we realize that God is loving, merciful, and forgiving, and we would love to see people come to know him and not receive whatever it is that's coming their way. We want to see them in the folds. I think we are a little more Peter than we are Jonah, and we might be a little more Peter than we want to admit because what Peter's issue is is not that he hates everybody else. It's that he doesn't think everybody else has the qualifications to receive that he does. Now that sounds a little more like me, and that might sound a little more like you, that maybe everybody hasn't put the time in that I've put. Maybe they haven't read as much as I've read, fasted as much as I've had. They don't know what I know. They haven't been down the road that I've been down. I mean, how could they be as anointed as I am, as blessed as I am, as favored as I am? Or maybe, how could those people be as loved by God? They don't fly the same flag I fly. They don't live in the same nation I live in. They don't vote the way that I vote. They don't see it the way that I see it. They don't wear the shirt that I wear. Their bumper sticker says something I don't agree with. How can they possibly be a part of anything good? Now you go, well, that sounds a little familiar. And if it does, then we're ready for Acts 10. Verse number one. There was a certain man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, the Italian cohort. I think the old King James calls it, and I love this phrase, the Italian band. I always imagine they were somewhat like the Beatles or something like that. I don't know. 
They weren't Italian, but they were a band. A devout man, one who feared God with all his... Now watch Cornelius. This is an interesting description of Cornelius. This is the ultimate description of religion. This is the ultimate description of everyone. I think most of the peoples of the earth are described in verse 2. Now, I'll explain that after I read it, but read this with me. A devout man, one who feared God with all his household, who gave charitable gifts. That's alms. In other words, he paid into the offering generously to the people, and he prayed to God always. Look at that. So everything about him is trying to be a better man on the earth. He has his religion. In fact, he's an outsider trying to, work to sort of get his way into the understanding of God through a Jewish lens. He's trying to live for God. He's trying to follow the commandments. He's trying to pay maybe his tithe, maybe his offering, maybe his alms. He's trying to do whatever he can to be a good man on the earth. You would like to live next to Cornelius. He would treat you fairly. doesn't matter what his religion is. He's moral and he's upright. His religion is not Jesus, but there's nothing about Acts chapter 10 verse 2 that you wouldn't want living on your street. This is a man who very much wants to see the world made a better place, and he'd like for it to start at his house. So much so that he's doing everything that he can in his own spirit to make sure his house is in order, so that maybe his street will be in order, so that maybe his nation will be in order. But he's come to the end of himself. He's done everything that he can under moral grounds, and this is what God does in response. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius... And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Don't ever think that what people are doing through the lens of their efforts or their religion is ignored by God. It's easy for us, especially in grace, to go, Well, God's not responding to people's works. I don't believe God is pouring out favor or grace based upon people's works. I don't believe that at all. But I also don't believe that heaven has shut its ear unless you pray in the name of Jesus or shut its ear unless you go to the right church or fly the right flag or live under the right banner. God has his ways. We don't always comprehend or understand how he's going to do it, but I hope you can see just a few verses in. God kind of likes Cornelius. God prefers some Cornelius. He likes what Cornelius is up to, at least enough to make another move to try and bring Cornelius into a level of revelation he hasn't had to this point. And now, now send men to Joppa, is what God tells him in verse 5, and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continuously. So when he had explained all these things to him, he sent them to Joppa. Here's the, one of the reasons why I like to see Peter and the story of the Cornelius house as a new parallel to Jonah and Nineveh. Because when God told Jonah to go down to Nineveh to preach repentance, Jonah went to the port city of Joppa. And he bought a ticket on a boat to head west to Spain, to a little city called Tarshish. He was really just running from God. And he made the decision to turn left at Joppa when he should have made the decision to turn right and go to Nineveh. And a new Joppa is introduced in Acts 10 with a brand new Jonah. This time his name is Peter. And he is living by the seaside resort town of Joppa. And I like to think that perhaps he can look out his window at Joppa and see the same port that Jonah turned left when he should have turned right. And here's a brand new opportunity to go take the gospel of God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness 
to a people who are in desperate need of it. And so the parallel starts to move in the same realm as which we see the Jonah parallel begin to move. And verse 9 introduces Peter. The next day, they went on their journey and drew near the city, and Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. He became very hungry and wanted to eat, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. And in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This is such an important moment. We're going to leave that moment hanging there for a moment. You can feel this is the hinge moment. This is the hinge moment, in my opinion, of the entire New Testament early church. Because if Peter turns left when he should turn right, God's going to find somebody that'll turn right. But it might have delayed you sitting here today. That's how big this moment is, I think, in the, in the evolution of where the gospel will go, the growth of where the gospel will go, and how the others become part of the group. It happens in this moment. So let's read on and we'll come back. What God's cleansed you must not call common. This was done three times. And the object was taken up into heaven again. So Peter didn't get it the first time. Peter didn't get it the second time. Peter didn't get it the third time. We never see him eat out of that sheet full of unclean animals. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry from, for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Peter whose surname was, whether Simon, sorry, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, go down, go with them, doubt nothing, I've sent them. All right. A lot covered in this story. A lot more to come. We're not going to read every verse of the story. Like I said, it's 48 verses of 10. It's half of chapter 11. It gets recounted in chapter 15. But the basis of this story hinged on that moment. I want to go back and take a look at in verse 13. The voice that says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, I don't know how much description that it needs, so I'll keep it brief. Peter is sitting on the roof of his house, ready to eat lunch. That sounds odd to us. Our roofs are sloped. You sit on the roof of your house here, you fall off and break your back. That's not the way houses are designed in the Middle East with the flat roof. So he's sitting on the roof, which is sort of his, his portico, his porch, his deck. He's out there enjoying the midday sun. He's talking to the Father. He's enjoying, he's loving life. He's the man that coins the, that requotes the phrase, he's loving life and seeing good days. I think he's doing that on the roof of his house in Joppa or at Simon the Tanner's house. And here comes a vision. He slips off into a pre-lunch nap. And in the middle of that nap, he has a vision and down comes a sheet full of what the Bible calls wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air. Those are three descriptors that Jews stay away from. Wild beasts are the animals that kill and tear apart other animals. You don't eat those. Creeping things are the things with too many legs or shells on them or uh, perhaps things that eat junk off the bottom of the river. These are the things you keep your hands off of. You don't touch them. You don't eat them. And then the fowls of the air, most of which were off limits in the Jewish dietary law. And so basically the descriptor is when Peter looked at it, he saw a bunch of stuff 
that you don't eat ever. And yet he hears a voice that I love how our translators put this one in red. Did you notice this in your own text? I like that because our translators had an idea that the voice Peter would hear in his head from this day forward when he hears God is not the old God he heard before he met Jesus of Nazareth, but it's Jesus. And that voice he heard so many times by the Sea of Galilee always makes everything he hears from God written in red. I'd like for you to know that everything you ever hear from God comes out written in red because it always comes to you through the lips of Jesus. And if it doesn't, you need to change the way you hear the voice of God. It should always be written in red because it's Christ who is speaking to us. He is the final word of who God is. And so as he hears those words written in red and he hears Jesus say to him, rise, kill, and eat, it runs counter to everything he's ever believed about himself as a Jewish man. Because here is how Peter was raised. Leviticus chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, this is what Peter knew about his own dietary law. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, that you may eat. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or that have cloven hooves. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. And then there's a list and a list and a list and a list and a list. I just wanted to put a little bit up there because I wanted you to see that what happens in the Torah is a list of regulations of what you can and cannot eat. You spend your entire life as a Jewish man in this day, and you never touch those foods because they are considered ceremonially unclean. And being under the law, you accept that as part of life, and you move forward. And here you are, sitting on the roof of your house, just about to eat. Your stomach is growling. You're ready for food. And here comes all of these animals down in a sheet that you would never touch in your life because they are unclean. And then the voice that you know as Jesus whispers into your spirit, take, kill, and eat. And everything inside of you fights against that voice because you have Leviticus 11 in your heritage. And you have the Torah in your heritage. And your heritage says to you, honor the word of God above all else. Whatever the word of God says, that's what you should honor. That would go over real big in the church today. If you get up in any church in America and go, hey, we believe the word of God above everything in everything, we would all say amen. And we should rightfully say amen. It's a good blanket statement, but it's simply a blanket statement. It's not a specific one, right? If it were a specific statement, we'd pick a verse out specifically put it on the screen and say, that's how we live in this church. And maybe the verse we would pick out is, if anyone is caught sleeping with someone they are not married to, take them outside of the city and stone them until they are dead. And we could put that on the screen and go, in this church, we believe everything the word of God says. Can you say amen? Now we have went from blanket to specific. Now things are getting serious. It's one thing to amen what is blanket. It's another thing to amen what is specific. And here was why I think it, the words dripped in red in Peter's ears and in Peter's hearts because he watched a man named Jesus who reveled in taking that which was in the word, that which was blanket in the word, and bringing the specifics to light and questioning the authenticity of the specific in light of the love of God. And so Peter is watching Jesus function in a world in which adherence to regulation was considered the highest form of spiritual morality. The most moral people on the planet in the days of Jesus would have been the Pharisees or the high priest who had strict adherence to the specific commands of Torah. Whatever the specific commands were, strict adherence to those was considered high morality. 
But the problem that Jesus ran into in his lifetime, that Peter watched Jesus try to navigate, and that now Peter in Acts 10 is being challenged to navigate on his own, and that I dare say we need to be challenged to navigate, is this, is that when you put adherence to obedience and Scripture above loving people, you've missed the point of the heart of God. Now, that never gets a round of amens like I always hope that it will. Perhaps we're just chewing on it. But I think it's also perhaps we're a little hesitant to amen it because we know the implications of what that statement means because what that statement means is we can't just take any old verse out of the Old Testament and slap our amen on it if adherence to that verse interferes with loving people. And while that sounds like it's something we should amen, it's difficult to bring ourselves to that point until we get to watch Jesus live that out. And we're okay if we can see Jesus do it. So let me help you see Jesus do it. And I'll just take one example from each gospel. So that won't take us all day because there's only Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But just one example from each, each gospel of Jesus who faces not just the blanket law, but the specific codes of the law and begins to reimagine them in a world in which you thought God loved people more than God loved strict adherence to rules and regulations. And that's a difficult pill to swallow if you're in love with rules and regulations. But people should trump whatever it is that you feel is a specific rule and regulation. Here's an example. Remember in Matthew chapter 5 at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You have heard it said, and as it is written... Do unto others, or I'm sorry, not do unto others. You have, had, you have heard it said, and as it is written, that if a man does something to you, that it is eye for eye, that it is, what's the next one? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I only ask that because I think we got that. Like, that's deep in us. We can all quote it. Because it's sort of human nature. He did it to me, I'm going to do it back to him. Whatever he did to me, I'm going to do to him. Jesus said, you've heard that said. Where, where, did they, where did they hear that said? By the way, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. In the law, that's in the Torah. That's scripture. You can put chapter and verse on that. But I say that it's an eye for an eye and it's a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus said, but I say to you. Now, I want you to listen to that transition. You have heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I say to you. But I say to you. It's already written, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You don't have to say anything to me. Word of God, bless God, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Jesus goes, but I say to you, here's Jesus running into a law and, re and wanting to show us that people trump strict adherence to law. And if you live in a world where it's eye for eye, tooth for tooth, what happens in one generation? No one can see, no one can eat. Why? Because everybody's blind. No one's got any teeth left. That's the way that world would work. If you live in a place where you get whatever it is you do to other people, you're going to mess that up. And you're one generation away from not having two generations. Because that's the response of strict adherence to people get whatever it is they have coming. And Jesus says, but I say to you, if a man smites you on the cheek, turn to him your other one also. Well, man, that's not as fun. It's way more enjoyable that if you take my eye, I get to take your eye. That's a better way to live. I mean, then I at least get a chance to win or at least get even. 
But in Jesus' term, why? Because Christ is not trying to make you weak. Christ is trying to elevate you to a place of strength that can't be found through an adherence to a system of reciprocity. That when you give to people what they give to you, the whole world ends up blind. What would happen if the kingdom of God had a different way of functioning? So Jesus runs into a law and says, but I say to you, with a chance to do this, Jesus turns to do this. Oh, that's not all of them. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus is confronted by the scribes and Pharisees, by the high priests, because he's been healing people on the Sabbath. And Jesus says to them, how many of you, if you had an ox and he fell into the ditch on the Sabbath day, wouldn't hesitate to go pull your ox out of the ditch? Now, why does Jesus ask them this? Because in the Old Testament Torah law, a man was found gathering sticks so he could build a fire on the Sabbath day. And he was brought before Moses. And the ruling was that if he gathered sticks on the Sabbath day, that is doing work. Even if that work is noble and honorable, you deserve to die. They took the man outside the camp, stoned him to death. Jesus is confronted for doing work on the Sabbath and says, if you had an ox and he fell in the ditch, wouldn't you feel it was imperative to go pull him out of the ditch? And according to, if you take the the man gathering sticks, get stoned outside the city as the template for what you're supposed to do to people who work on the Sabbath, Jesus is the next in line to get taken outside the city and stoned to death on the Sabbath. But Jesus, Jesus is showing you that the loving heart of the Father is to show us the importance of the individual, who they are, what they have, and that that should be honored and that that should be respected because the respect of the individual should always be respected should always be held in higher regard than your individual interpretation of what the law means. That's not easy to go down. There's more. In the book of Mark chapter 2, Jesus meets with a bunch of prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors and has lunch with them. And the Pharisees pull off to the side and say, why is it that you eat with sinners? Why is it that you fellowship with the unclean? Interestingly enough, when you get on up into the book of Acts, and you, look, did, did I give you Acts chapter 10, verse 27? Look at this. This is when Peter actually meets Cornelius. I'm just jumping ahead for just a second because I want to show you something. Peter talks with them, and when he found many who had come together, verse 28, he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to someone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. I want to borrow that for a second because you notice Peter won't go in and eat with the house of Cornelius, or he's hesitant to go in and eat with the house of Cornelius. Why? Because they're sinners, because they're Gentiles. Jesus in Mark chapter 2 did exactly what Peter hesitates to do in Acts chapter 10. Peter was running with Jesus and still missed it because our strict adherence to the law often trumps how much we love other people because we are worried about what other people will think about us if we're found cohorting with people that are of the others. What if we accept people who are of the others? What are people going to think about me? If they see me hanging out with so-and-so or talking to so-and-so or being involved with that, they're going to think that I'm this or they're going to think that I'm that. And Jesus had to experience that as he walked through the earth because what people saw in him didn't always equal up to what Jesus was doing. My favorite is John chapter 8 when the woman caught in the very act of adultery. Remember, we pulled a specific text a while ago from the Torah and said, what if we want to live by this one, which is if you are caught sleeping with someone else's spouse, you're dragged out of of the camp and you're stoned until you are dead. Jesus is confronted with that very specific law in his life and ministry in John chapter 8. And the Pharisees come to him and they say, 
Moses says we should stone her to death, but what do you say? And the attempt is to pit Jesus against Moses. And why would they do that? Because the lifestyle they've seen Jesus live is one in which when Jesus runs up against the stone-cold law, if it doesn't love people, Jesus has a way of walking around it. And so they look at Jesus and say, well, what do you think we should do in this situation? And Jesus reaches down and doodles in the sand. And you know, I talked a little bit about that last night or the night before. I think sometimes you need to just stop, talk to the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, what do you think I ought to say here? Even Jesus? Yes, that's our template. Don't respond so quickly. This isn't as easy as it sounds. I'm supposed to drag her out of the, in, outside of the city and stone her to death. That's what the word of God says. Thus saith the Lord, she should die. And Jesus says, he without sin among you cast the first stone. Why does he do this? Because loving people and showing the grace and the mercy of the Father trumps whatever else it is that we run into in life. Now, Peter has all of this in his head because Peter was at every situation. He was at every incident I just told you about. He lived them all out in full color, in detail. He heard and saw that Jesus. And when this sheet comes down into the life of Peter... Peter has an interpretation. I want you to remember this. When he saw the sheet, I'll reread this for you. When he saw the sheet, here's what he heard. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. That was in regards to animals, right? Here's how Peter heard it in Acts chapter 10, verse 29. Go back to that, um, that text I just gave you. Acts 10, 28, 29. 10, 28. You got that? All right. He said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation? God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Let me stack them up for you. When he saw the sheet, there it is. When he saw the sheet, what did he, what did he hear? What God has cleansed, don't call common. When he told other people what he heard, he said, God showed me I shouldn't call any man common. Let me slow down, make sure you see that. When he saw the sheet and God said, take, kill and eat, he said, I don't eat anything. It's unclean. And God said, don't call common or unclean, whatever I've cleaned. Then when he's introduced to the house of Cornelius, he reimagines that vision as God showed me I shouldn't call any man common or unclean. When God showed him the things on the roof, God never mentioned people. God just said, take, kill and eat. So how did Peter make the leap between Acts chapter 10, verse 15, and Acts chapter 10, verse 28? How did he make the leap from, you should eat whatever's in that sheet, to you should never call any person you meet unclean? I'll tell you how I think he made that leap. He had Jesus as his guide. I think his entire journey from Joppa to the house of Cornelius is a brand new journey to Nineveh. And what Jonah failed to learn Peter learned where Jonah fails to really grasp the heart of God and he needs a whale and he needs vomited up and he needs that little shrub story from Jonah 4 and all the stuff that accompanies it. Peter doesn't need that. He just needs to remember the words written in red. And if you can remember the Jesus that spoke those words into your heart, you'll see Jesus running up against the stone cold realities of the law and doing whatever the, word, the, the written code says to do and then taking the step to the side, not because he's trying to circumvent God's holiness, but because he's trying to love 
love people right where they are, whether they're a sinner or a Pharisee or a tax collector or a woman caught in the act of adultery or someone that needs healed on the Sabbath. He won't let the realities of the strictures of the law stop him from loving people. And so as Peter's taking the journey to the house of Cornelius, he's recalling, because remember we read and Peter meditated on what that sheet of animals meant. And as Peter meditated on it, it began to transform in his mind. It wasn't God just trying to tell him he can eat whatever is put in front of him. That'll be a part of the message that comes later. But it was, don't you ever call anyone you meet unclean or common. Now that's quite a leap. But he made it because he had the template of Jesus who amazingly, this is, this is one of my infatuations with Jesus, a man who never met anyone so bad that he couldn't reach out and hug them and love them. Judas Iscariot has just sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And he walks into the Garden of Gethsemane and the Gospels say Jesus looks at him and says, what are you doing here, friend? And Judas, so used to Jesus, the loving Jesus, reaches in to kiss Jesus on the cheek. And Jesus takes the kiss, knowing it's a kiss of betrayal. That's a Jesus I'm enamored of. Never met a person he don't reach in to hug. Knowing that they're reaching in to hug him with the knife to stab him in the back. And he still brings him in. Because he just spent hours sweating great drops of blood going, Father, whatever cup it is you put in front of me, I'd rather not drink it, but I'll drink it. And the first sip that's brought to him is a betrayer. <laughs> you go, are you serious? You still want to drink the cup, son? Bring him in, Father. He can't be worse than the woman caught in the act of adultery. He can't be worse than the Samaritan woman you took me to in John 4. He can't be worse than that centurion whose son I healed just by speaking the word. Let Bring him in. That's what Peter, that's the template Peter has when he goes to the house of Cornelius. He doesn't understand what he's there for. He still doesn't understand what he's there for. One of the follow-up verses in Acts 10 is, what is it you guys want me to do for you? Which I always thought was such a crazy question. I mean, this is open-door evangelism, man. And you got to ask him what it is you guys want. Because in his mind, he shouldn't go in and judge him, but they still don't really qualify for the Jesus he has. He just hasn't judged them yet. There's a progression in his revelation. It's going to end up being, wow, they got the same Holy Ghost we got. Because at the end of Acts 10, he says, anyone who believes on Jesus can receive repentance of sin. And the Bible says, as he spoke these words, the Holy Spirit came into the room and every one of them began to speak with other tongues. And Peter and those with him were amazed for they saw the same Holy Ghost they had on the house of Cornelius and the Gentiles. And Peter said, who could forbid these men from being baptized? Which was unheard of. You didn't baptize Gentiles. And yet Peter, walking right outside of the law, circumventing what was written down and decides he's going to start acting like Jesus and goes, well, if God takes them in, maybe I ought to take them in. And if he'll put the Holy Spirit in them, maybe I could dunk them in water, let them identify with a resurrected Christ. Which that blew our Pentecostal minds when I was growing up that anybody could get the Holy Ghost hadn't been baptized in water yet. And he said, wow, that's not even possible. <laughs> you got to do these things in order, man. It's like personally accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior at the sinner's prayer, then get baptized in water, then at, or, or at least get saved first, then get the Holy Ghost. Everything just thrown out the window with Jesus because you don't tell the Holy Spirit how to act. That's what I love about the book of Acts. You don't ever tell the Holy Spirit what order he can do things in. He loves people. He's ready to move wherever the Father says move. 
Acts 11, he recounts the story. Acts 15, council at Jerusalem. They're trying to figure out if Gentiles ought to be circumcised and keep the law. And Peter stands up and goes, hey, I went to a house and watched God give the Holy Ghost to them the same as he gave to us. And I have concluded that we shall be saved in the same manner that Gentiles are saved. There's another path-breaking statement. He said that backwards. He didn't say Gentiles shall be saved the way we are. He said, I perceive we shall be saved the same way they are. In other words, he saw something brand new when he walked into the house of Cornelius. He went, these people eat anything that's put in front of them. They don't think kosher food. These people don't care about ceremonial washings. These people don't honor a Sabbath day. But I, I don't know what just happened. They accepted Jesus by faith. The Holy Ghost came in. It's the same Holy Ghost I saw at Pentecost. The Holy Ghost I thought was only accessible to those who were born into the right family. Everything that had been written up to that point, he ran into like a solid rock. And he had to take a step to the side and go, I think God loves people more more than he does strict rules. Be careful what you call common. Be careful what you refer to as common or unclean because the moral of the story is you don't make the rules. And you go, yes, but there are rules. The second moral of the story are the rules don't trump people's reality, their individuality and their heart. The love of God for people, is the greatest thing the gospel has going for it. It's why I said to you for the last two nights, the worst thing we can do with Christianity is relegate it to a system of moral code whereby we think if you do them, you'll become perfect. That is awful. It's satanic and it's antichrist. Because the gospel is not trying to do better. The gospel is good news. He doesn't consider you common. He doesn't consider you unclean. He reaches out and grabs you when you've just took a knife and stabbed him between the shoulder blades with your 30 pieces of silver. He still calls you friend, lets you kiss him on the cheek. How close do you want to get? Yeah, you don't know how bad I've lived. How close do you want to get, Judas? He knows you're going to betray him, but he still tears bread and half slides it across the table at you. Says, take, eat, this is my body. Take, drink, this is my blood. Any man eats this, he has my life in him. Any man drinks this. He has me. If you don't eat and drink this, we don't fellowship together. Judas takes it in, walks out of the room, and betrays the Lord Jesus. That's the risk God had to run to save all of us traitors. That's the risk he has to run to pour his grace onto ungrateful people and unworthy people, the chiefest of who I am. That's why Paul said he was the chiefest of sinners to Timothy. We try to wonder, why would Paul call himself the chiefest of sinners? He's the righteousness of God. I've made this argument. Why would Paul try to call himself the chiefest of sinners? He's the righteousness of God in Christ. You shouldn't call yourself the chiefest of sinners because he never lost the consciousness that the reality is, is I'm loved in spite of myself. Because sometimes, though I'm the apostle Paul, I sure do act like that snot Saul of Tarsus. And man, do I need some grace. And even though I'm, and I like to consider myself one of God's men of faith and power. And I hope you consider yourself one of God's men and women of faith and power, one of the sons of God. Even though I know I'm a son of the kingdom, man, sometimes I act like a son of this world. And sometimes I act like a son of something else. <laughs> what? Don't, you don't have to read anything negative into that. Just a son of people. It's my parents, mom and dad. <laughs> Is that too far? No, that's not a bridge too far at Grace Life, right? I'm good. Don't call, uh, don't call uncommon or unclean what God has called clean. Peter reimagines it as don't call any man unclean. I love his reimagining. He has captured the heart of the Father. He went from it's, it's all about what I can and can't eat to it's all about who qualifies 
Now, Peter didn't understand the fullness of the theology. His message is relatively short. It's not packed with a lot of meat. He does nail the one moment he needs to nail, which is if you believe on him, you can have forgiveness of sins. Boom, Holy Ghost comes into the room. Because all the Holy Spirit's really waiting for is a window. Cornelius has been doing the seeking for all of Acts 10. And it's just finally that moment where you go and introduce to Jesus. I am not telling you that the house of Cornelius was saved. I'm telling you that the house of Cornelius is qualified. And why were they qualified? See, this is the difference in Cornelius... In Acts chapter 10, verse 2, Cornelius is a good guy with high principles trying to change his world. Why does he need to meet Jesus? Why does he need to be introduced to the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit becomes the internalization of what Cornelius is trying to do on the outside in Acts 10. See, religion tries to get you to do on the outside. I'm not mocking. If you're going to mock religion, you've got to mock Acts 10 too. Cornelius is doing the best he can. You really want him living next door to you. He's a pretty good dude. You go, yeah, but he's religious. Well... It's better than anti-religious, I suppose, or anti-relationship, or hating God. At least Cornelius is doing something to improve both himself and the world around him. So why does he need Christ? Because Christ isn't just about reaching up a ladder to try to achieve something in God. Christ is about an identity, about knowing I'm a new creation, about having access to whatever Jesus has access to. It transcends an Acts 10-2 religion, and it runs over into an, a late Acts 10 relationship, which is that outpouring, that blood that washes us, that Holy Spirit that we identify with. And then we get the internal plumb line of the Spirit who leads and guides us into all truth and guides us into peace. These are the things we don't have without Christ. This is why I'm a firm believer we need to be telling the world about Jesus. Yes, even people who have high morals. Yes, people, even people who have high religion. But I'm also not worried about the Holy Spirit's ability to reach people in the middle of their religious activities. If he could reach Cornelius in the middle of his religion, and he could reach me in the middle of mine, who am I to say that the Holy Spirit won't go to whatever lengths he needs to go to to reach people in the middle of theirs? And that's the role of the Holy Spirit, the role of the Father. So everyone's qualified. I leave the judging up to God, and that's what Peter was learning. To go, what I've learned is that I don't call any man common or unclean. And so I leave it to the Father. Everyone is qualified in his eyes. Now listen, I'm going to give you a couple more things, just try to land this. I think when we get in the habit of referencing the common versus the uncommon, because the common was just another fancy English way of saying unholy, honestly. Unholy. What's unholy? And we got whole books written on holiness. Here's the weird thing. We write whole books on holiness to people that the Bible calls holy. And we tell them through 15 chapters how to be more holy when holiness can only be achieved with the Holy One inside of us. Holiness is not what I do, it's who I am. Now, interestingly enough, God told Peter, don't ever call any man unholy. You leave that to God. As far as you're concerned, everything is, everyone is susceptible, everyone is a candidate for whatever it is God wants to do. You leave that into the hands of the Father. When you become accustomed to identifying common and uncommon, be careful that you don't slip off into a system where you become the arbiter in the world of what is common and uncommon. And when you become that arbiter, you, you become a danger to the world that encounters you. And what it tends to happen in all of us that focus on what's common and uncommon and who's common and uncommon is we slip back into a system of performance and works. And when we do that, we make the ultimate transgression of calling what Christ has done common. 
because we put the sacrifice of Jesus on the same level as my personal efforts and personal sacrifices. And when we do that, we make his uncommon sacrifice as common as our daily sacrifices. And there's no such thing as putting what he did at Calvary on par with the fact that I read 20 chapters this week, or I gave 25% in the offering this week, or I evangelized this week, or I fasted for seven days. And I can receive, by doing all of those things, what can only be received by the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's so easy to slip back into that mentality that I need something from God. I'm going to have to go show God how serious I am because the cross doesn't show God anything that I can't show God with five good days of not eating. Isn't that weird? Sounds weird when you say it that way, doesn't it? I could show God how serious I am. If I gave a little more money, God would know that I'm really serious about this. Oh, I wouldn't say more serious than the cross, yet... I'll go to that effort before I'll go and trust that what Christ has done is going to bring me what it is that I'm looking for. So do you have scripture for this? Of course. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. This is, an, this is a remarkable little spot that needs a ton of context. and only have so much time for so much, so we'll try. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law, Hebrews 10, 28, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's what the law does. How much worse punishment do you suppose... Will he, he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing? That's the same word, by the way, that God told Peter to stop doing in, in Acts chapter 10. He has considered the blood of Jesus a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. What's the context of Hebrews? Well, the, whole, the context of the whole book of Hebrews is don't go back to the systems of Moses in order to achieve what can only be done through Christ. And so when you go back to the systems of performance, you give the ultimate insult to the blood of Jesus and to the spirit of grace by considering what Christ did to be common, but what you're doing to be special. What I'm doing is special. Nobody else is doing it. I'm at another level. New levels, new devils. So I'm squaring off with all hell because I've been deemed worthy. You graduate to a certain level of revelation and devotion and dedication. You are equipped with bigger guns. Therefore, bigger devils come at you. How many? Hebrews 10. How many of you would realize, he says, that you had to step across the blood of Jesus to get there and you insult the spirit of grace by calling the cross uncommon while you call everything else. You call the cross common while you call everything else uncommon. There's no commonness in who he is. And therefore, there's no commonness in what he calls special. Let's close this where the Bible closes. I want to take you to the New Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem, this city, a new heaven on a new earth. Now, I want, to, I want to lay this out as a landing spot, and I want to say this as context. Some people believe that the new Jerusalem is a literal city, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles high. By the way, those are the literal dimensions in the book of Revelation. 
That would put whatever the new Jerusalem is about three times farther than the edge of the stratosphere on planet Earth, dipping out into the solar system in height, and as wide as the Mississippi River to the eastern seaboard, and as tall, just about, as where I'm from in Georgia to the northern part of the United States. And so that would be one more massive city on what I would assume would be one more massive planet if it's literal. I want you to just consider for a moment, I've said this the last two nights, I'll say this again today. I'm not trying to convince you of what I'm about to say. I'm trying to expand your ability to think. So expand your ability to think for a moment. I want you to consider that maybe God is not trying to define for you a literal city, but one that has so much room it cannot be maxed out. That one that has the ability to receive anyone and everyone who ever wants to live there. That they don't have a housing problem. That they don't have a land problem. That they don't have a provision problem. They're not overpopulated. They are not threatening the environment. They are not changing their climate. They are part of something that is completely, that has no limitations. Maybe that's that New Jerusalem. And if that is that new Jerusalem, then the reality of what the angel says to John in in the book of Revelation is, if you want to see the Lord's bride, let me show you the Lord's bride. And I saw a city coming down from God out of heaven. And if it's not literal, but it's figurative, then maybe what's being described in Revelation as the new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. And if you think you're part of the body of Christ now, consider the possibility that you are populating a new Jerusalem. That you, I don't mean a country, a flag, a piece of geography, but that by being part of the kingdom of God, you are a recipient of whatever Revelation says is already inside of that city. If that's a possibility, look at Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 to 27, and just read it maybe for the first time through that lens, all right? Just consider this possibility. I saw no temple in it because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. This is verse 22 of Revelation 21. Verse 23, the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. Listen to this. In the earliest Greek translation we found of the book of Revelation, the phrase of those who are saved was not included. Of those who are saved was a scribal edition later as we started translating the book of Revelation and I think started needing it to fit a mold that we had already created for the city in our head. Earliest Greek says the nations shall walk in its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory and their honor into it. It's ga- and up, what, Why do I include what I just said? Because if that's true then whatever the new Jerusalem is provides the light for whatever the new Jerusalem isn't. Okay? Whatever is not the new Jerusalem would be darkness. Therefore, whatever is the new Jerusalem would be light. What did Jesus call you? The light of the world. What did Paul call you? Children of light, so walk as if it is light, not as if it is night. Maybe he is saying walk as if you lived in a new place. Walk as if it was a place without limitations. Walk as if, as if it was a place that provided light for those who were outside of it. Look at 25. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night in there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of nations into it. But there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
The phrase that defiles is the same Greek word used in Acts 10 as common. So there shall not be anything in that new Jerusalem that is common. You go, see, the common are not allowed in. You're right, they're not. Who gets to call who's common? You? Acts 10, God said, don't you ever call anyone common or unclean that I've called uncommon and clean. Never again do you get the right. So whether New Jerusalem is a literal city or a figurative city, we don't get to decide who gets in. Based on the hinging point of Acts 10, Revelation 21, I don't get to decide who gets to be part of it and who doesn't get to be part of it. You go, well, it sure would be nice if we had a description of who gets to be part of it and who doesn't get to be part of it. We're on our way. Revelation doesn't want to leave us out to dry. It does want to give us a description of God's point of view of who gets to go in and who doesn't get to go in. But before we do that, he wants to show you what it looks like on the inside. Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. In the middle of the street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, where are the other nations? According to Revelation 21, where are the other nations? They're outside of the New Jerusalem. What's the leaves on the inside supposed to do for the rest of the nations? Heal them. Why are the gates open? The gates are open maybe because there's a medicinal tree growing next to the, tree, the spirit of life inside of the New Jerusalem. And everybody on the outside, the ones that we've been identifying as common and unclean, that God said, you don't get to do that, I do that. The gates are open so that they can come in and eat from the therapia. This is the Greek word that we derive the English word therapy. Did you know that the phrase healing is the Greek word therapia? The leaves of the tree are for the therapy of the nations. Don't bemoan therapy. Just get the right therapy. Therapy is godly. You need a therapeutic touch of who the spirit of life is. That's going to be part of the New Jerusalem. You go, okay, then let's identify who's common and who's on the outside. Revelation twenty-two fourteen. 14. Blessed are those who do his commandments. Time out earliest Greek manuscript we found right here says, blessed are those who've washed their robes. But once again, I think a late scribal edition needed to make it a little tougher to get into the city. Don't you ever call common and unclean what God says is clean. How do you get in? Wash your robes. That they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside, here we go, outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and adulterers and whoever loves and practices a lie. You're not dwelling in the city if this is how you govern yourself. Now the gates are open, the leaves are available, and if you need over this stuff, your answer's on the inside of whatever the New Jerusalem is. If you think it's a literal city, then your literal answer is inside of a literal 1,500-mile-tall city on the New Jerusalem, and then that ain't yours for a long, long time because that city ain't here yet. But if that city isn't literal, but it is spiritual, then maybe, maybe you have a therapy available if you are any of these that the church likes to call common. And that if you want to come in, you can eat from the leaves and start your therapy. You can start the process 
of grabbing hold of your own piece of property in an almost limitless arena of geography called the New Jerusalem. You can start that process, and if it's not for you, you can leave the gate. Oh, my goodness. You can come in, taste the leaf, go back out. You can sample with truth and then go back out and practice the lie. I believe the more you get into the truth, the less you'll practice the lie. But if you'll walk through the doors, wherever you're practicing the lie, you'll start to taste the truth. And as you taste the truth, maybe you won't want the lie so much. But it's okay. If you're still hooked to the lie, the gates are open. Go back out. Live your hell. The leaves are there. Now you go, man, what's happening in this city What's the end game? What's, how is it supposed to ultimately end up? I'm glad you asked. He loves to answer questions like this. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I'm the root, I'm the offspring of David, I'm the bright morning star. The bright morning star, I'm the day star that shines in your life. And right outside of your night comes the morning star. Whatever your night looks like, he says, I'm the answer. So this is the key. Whatever those leaves are, it's Jesus. Whatever that darkness is, the antidote is Jesus. 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come, whoever desires. The end game for God is to set his kingdom into the middle of the darkest hell and fling wide the gates and stand at the door saying, come. The end game for God is for the heaven, for, for the new Jerusalem to swallow up the hell that lives beside it. Because he doesn't close the doors on darkness. He leaves them open. Now listen, you're in that verse. Look at you. I don't care who you are today. You're in that verse. Read it again. The spirit and the bride say, come. Are you the bride? Yeah. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Yeah. What should you be declaring to everyone you see in the world? Come. Not come to my church. Now that might be part of it, but come here to the healing. Come here to the leaves. Gates are open. Gates are, you qualify. I'm not going to call you uncommon. I'm not going to call you common. I'm not going to call you unclean. That's not my call. You know what my call is? Come. You know what my call is? He loves you. He's camped out next to you. He put himself right there. Whatever your darkness is, it's okay. He's the day star. He wants to rise in your life. You don't like it? That's okay. You can kiss him, hug him, stab him in the back like Judas. He's going to reach out and grab hold of you. And you know what's going to happen when you run back out of the gate and run back to your lie? He's going to walk to the edge of the gate like the father waiting on the prodigal son to come home. And he's going to go, come. Come. I want you and me to have fellowship. I want us. So you and I are saying, come. Let him who hears say, come. Listen, this is the individual part of the revelation. The first part's corporate. The church is supposed to be saying, come. But let him who hears say, come. This is my role and your role, not the church's role. So it's not come to my church only. It's I'm going to come into your world and I'm going to invite you into a place where the gates are always open. And I'm going to say that you're not common. I'm going to say that's up to God. And the work has been done on your behalf. And then look at, who, look at the last one. Him who's thirsty, come. Take the water of life freely. That's whoever else is left. You want the water of life? Where is it? It's in him. Be careful what you call common this week. Be careful. You might just be talking about one of his. 
And they might be on a journey. They might be on a religious journey. They might be on a self-righteous journey. They might be on a high morality journey. They might be miles from Jesus. But he says, be careful what you call common. I've got plans for them. I'm swinging the door wide for them. I'm enticing them with the therapy of the leaves of the tree. I'm showing them my goodness. You let me do the work. Your job is to keep saying, come, come, come. Father, thank you today for this word. Thank you, Father. I've been so excited as I delivered it that there's so many moments where I probably overran that spot. And Father, all that's on me. And and I ask that wherever I interfered with that word, let them forget that. Help them to take what is you in it and let that grow in their heart. Let that spring forth so that we never again call that common that you have chosen, that we receive all that you have done on our behalf. And then we turn to a world that we know is full of all of those others in Revelation 22. And we say to them, come, drink freely. You qualify for the leaves and the water. And if there's anyone here today in this room or listening or watching down the road who needed that message because they have felt like they're the common, Father, right now, reach your arms of compassion around them and show them how much you love them and that they too can come and drink of the waters of life freely. How? Same way the house of Cornelius did. Just receive it. Just receive you and who you are. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Grace Life Church, I hope you had half as much fun 